This New America NYC event took place on May 23rd, 2017, and is titled The Financial Diaries. This event is part of a social cinema screening series at Tumblr and features Xavier DeSosa Briggs, Jonathan Mordick, Rachel Schneider, Justin King, Unique Brathlett, and Alex Goldmark. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Alana Breutman, and I direct New America New York. Uh, we're very proud to be doing this event tonight. And before I get to introductions, I just want to say we sort of had an interesting and special day for a crowd who came in to, to talk about economic opportunity. We started with an event with the uh, Deputy Secretary General of the UN and the EU Commission and Commissioner Timmermans and a number of executives from Wall Street talking about macroeconomics and development and how does the private sector, how can and should contribute to global trends to or global um, innovations to, to end poverty. And uh, you know that was two and a half hours of a discussion of the global. And here we are now looking at the local. And how do we do this? And how do we think about the data and the tools that we have to address um, income inequality right here? So I feel like it's just been a great day of the bookends of a very important conversation that we should be having at that 30,000 foot level and the 20 foot level. Um, so I hope you enjoy it as we have all day today. And, um, and now I have the job of um, introducing Zav, who's gonna speak and introduce the panel. And it's quite a job because he's done quite a bit. Xavier DeSouza Briggs is the president of Economic Opportunity and Markets at Ford. Um, he's done so much that I brought a cheat sheet um, but I won't embarrass him with too much. But, but Zav leads for, uh, Ford's work in promoting economic fairness uh, and advancing sustainable development, as well as the Asia programs. Uh, he's been a professor of sociology and urban planning at MIT, led a lot of projects there, uh, has served as President Obama's associate director of OMB, which is quite an interesting job now that we're contemplating a budget that cuts a lot of the very um, or proposes to cut a lot of the very funding that supports the kind of things we're going to talk about tonight. And um, he's an award-winning author, commentator, educator, all the things that he's going to be too embarrassed for me to say up here, but that are wonderful in his background. And he's, um, he's somebody who has actually served uh, in the Bronx, so, you know, our very own. Zav, please come up here. Help me welcome him. Ilana, thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's great to be um, here with you tonight. I want to thank Ilana and her uh, terrific team and New America for hosting us in this um, beautiful space. Ilana also briefly promoted me to president, so thank you for that. I'm actually I'm a vice president at Ford. Um, and just thrilled to be introducing tonight, and I will do so very briefly so we get immediately to the panel and the authors, excuse me, that you came to, um, to hear. Jonathan and Rachel uh, have produced the book, The Financial Diaries, which is incredibly powerful and important. My friend and former White House colleague, Van Jones, likes to say that there are before and after books. There are books that just change the way you understand the world and how it came to be a certain way. 
and what's at stake for all of us in the way the world is operating and why we need to change it. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is a before and after book by that, by that definition, certainly. And I'm going to argue that The Financial Diaries is a before and after book. I certainly expect that it's going to have that kind of impact and help to change the way we think about um, economic opportunity and financial security in this country in ways that you will hear much more about in just, just a few minutes. First, let me say, though, that uh, we were very pleased at Ford to be joined in this, um, in this venture by the City Foundation and the Omidyar Network. I want to thank both for joining with us to support this important research, this very far-sighted research. Collecting a financial diary, and the authors will tell you how they did it in just a moment, is as laborious as it sounds. It is, a, it is a ton of work. It's never been done in America before, certainly not in any significant systematic way. It's a method, in fact, that was born in, so far as we know, born in Bangladesh, a, an extremely poor country. It has also been a, a very innovative country, if you know anything about the origins of microfinance, microlending, the Grameen Bank, the Nobel laureate uh, Mohammed Yunus uh, and his innovations. Bangladesh has been a very special place. This idea of having people record their everyday transactions and then making sense of them over time was born there and brought to America in this just spectacular piece of work. Jonathan and Rachel, congratulations and, and thank you for what you have given us. Um, one of the things that the, the book, the findings in the book, helped to uncover is the enormous financial volatility that people experience in their lives. Not just, by the way, on the very bottom of the economy, but well up into the middle as well. And you know where I'm going with this. Inequality has become an extremely serious problem in our country. It threatens our democracy in all kinds of profound ways. It also threatens our prosperity and economic growth itself because we've become so unequal. The kind of economic insecurity and financial insecurity you're going to hear about tonight revealed in a profoundly new way is one important dimension, one very powerful important dimension of that uh, inequality and the huge cost that the country is, is bearing. And how much of America, in fact, the middle on down, uh, is bearing that, that cost. We've thought about economic opportunity, if you, if you think about this, we've thought about economic opportunity often in terms of poverty, in terms of income. And is someone's income level adequate? We haven't given nearly as much thought to how predictable or how stable their income is, whether they're able to plan and have a life, including family routines, hopefully the ability to save, to get ahead in life, to do all those things that everyone is entitled to be able to do. And as Jonathan and Rachel will show, it's extremely difficult in the economy we have now uh, for many, many people in this country to do that. And they'll talk about how they learn that through the power of, of financial diaries. I would argue, given what we're learning at Ford through our many partners around the country and even other parts of the world, that there are at least two big implications of this work. And this will be my last point. I'll introduce the panel. You'll hear from them, and they will debate this stuff much, much more, and they will welcome your questions and your views. One set of implications is about the financial marketplace itself. We need a financial marketplace that protects and empowers people rather than preying on them. And that's something we have to create together. The role of government is crucial in that, but leadership from the private sector is also very, very important. The second set of implications go beyond even the financial marketplace, because at the end of the day, with whatever tools and products people have, they're managing for income and expenses, right, that go beyond the financial services themselves that have to do with the paycheck, the nature of work, the nature of the work contract, the predictability of their hours, and that thing, almost sounds quaint now, 
the safety net, that thing we create together that helps protect all of us um, and helps protect people from all kinds of risks. One of the big implications here is about the financial marketplace. Another set of things, as you'll hear in a moment, is really about those broader questions, the nature of work and the safety net, and our need to revamp it and recommit to it in this country. So here we go. Tonight, again, thanks to New America Foundation for hosting us and putting together this great program. The authors, Jonathan, who is a professor at NYU and directs something called the Financial Access Initiative, and Rachel, who works at the Center for Financial Service Innovation, they're going to share their findings, and then we're going to hear from a policy advocate and someone who works on the front lines with families to help them strengthen and grow their economic security. Alex Goldmark will be our moderator. Um, thank you, Alex. He is supervising producer of Planet Money on NPR and the global uh, economic unit of NPR. Something like 2 million uh, downloads. Is it, is it per week, per month? It's, uh, anyway, it's a ton of downloads. <laughs> very, very frequently. I've forgotten the, the, the interval of time. Um, it's an extremely popular and important uh, source. And in addition, Alex will be joined, and Rachel and Jonathan will be joined, by Unique Brathwaite from Lyft, New York, and Justin King from the New America Foundation. Please join me in welcoming and thanking our panel. I was told to sit here. I don't know if there are other assignments. Uh, I guess I'm sitting here. Um, boy, girl, boy, girl. Thank you very much for that gracious introduction. And it's per week, but it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> can everybody hear me? Yep. Okay. So I'm Alex Goldmark. This is Rachel Schneider, as I've said, one of the authors, senior vice president for the Center for Financial Services Innovation. And that is an organization dedicated to building the financial health of uh, Americans. And Jonathan Mordock, right there, professor of public policy at economic, and economics at the Wagner Graduate School at NYU. His research, it's worth noting, and his teaching focuses on inequality and finance in the US and globally. And so just part of the spirit to bring this project here to, from Bangladesh to the US. That is Unique Brathwaite, who is the executive director of Lyft. Lyft, I want to say, is a national organization dedicated to ending intergenerational poverty. And before that, Unique, you led a program and evaluation at the Go Project. You designed mentoring curriculum at iMentor. And I like that you did make sure that you put in your bio that your most rewarding job is that you were a mother of two kids. And Justin King, who policy director here of the Family-Centered Social Policy Program at New America, where he works to advance policies that expand economic security and opportunity for striving America. Before that, you worked in the US Senate for seven years. So I'm out. You're out. <laughs> Bonafide. Just in time. Bonafide policy expert is the point of that statement. So the way this is going to go is we can all have a conversation, interrupt each other just like we were rowdy friends geeking out over some amazing new research at a bar with some friends who will join us afterwards. I may interrupt you guys to keep it moving along. Please forgive me when I do that. Just trust me that it is for the purpose of getting to all of the stuff we need to get to. There are books for sale. I want to say that now and I'll say it again afterwards that you'll be able to buy and we will take questions. So it's my turn to say something nice about this, this book, and then I'll do much less of the talking for the rest of the, the evening. I've been waiting for this book for years because I think they've done something difficult and ambitious and important, and I think that there is no substitute for what is essentially the detailed portrait of a life 
when you want to understand how you might intervene in a way that could help that person. And it was hard to convince families to do this, hard to keep them doing it, right? A lot of people dropped out because it's really just a big ask. And you guys stuck with it, and it's really hard to make sense of the data when it comes in. So my hat's off to you guys. Now, I think that it's also worth just saying the biggest surprise of this, so to speak, was the volatility uh, in the income, and I think that's where we should start off, that $30,000 a year income does not equal $30,000 a year income does not equal $30,000 a year income. So to whichever of you two want to jump in, um, tell us the, like, the, big, the big finding top line, and then we'll, we'll sort of respond to what it means. So, so I'll start. So first of all, I have to say, like, I am almost embarrassed. Like, I, I really appreciate what you said, Zeb, and what you're saying, Alex. And um, there are a number of people in the room who have heard us whine and carry on for years about how hard this was and who have helped to make it come to fruition. And we're really grateful for that and really appreciative that the Ford Foundation stuck it out because we started this project quite some time ago. So, you know, and I, I won't assume everybody knows what the work is, but essentially we worked really closely with 235 families to understand their financial life over the course of a year. And we tried, the ambition was, can we collect everything? Every dollar that they borrowed, spent, saved, gave away, earned. And that was the objective. And because we were capturing it in person, we also got to know the people. And so the idea was, can we marry that data with those stories, with those lives, and, and um, help to be their megaphone? And, um, you know, the, the big thing that jumps out is what you measured, what you mentioned, is the volatility of people's financial lives, is the, the fact that cash flows over time are far more unstable and more insecure than you would be able to tell if you just looked at unemployment rates, if you just looked at somebody's total annual income, if you just looked at their bank account balance at a moment in time. And those moments, those moments where people are short, where they don't have enough to pay their bills, are really an important part of people's financial lives. And it's not always because they don't have enough overall. It's not always about sufficiency. Sometimes it's about the way the money moves through their lives. Well, I think one of, the, one of the things that you wrote in the book is that stability is as much a goal as, as wealth or financial advancement numerically. I don't know. Is it, I think it's worth you maybe painting a portrait right now, right? Like you, you have these whole pictures that you've summarized in the book and that you know personally, right? So, Jonathan, why don't you give us one just example of why, you know, the kind of story that shows that this is so valuable. Yeah, so stability really becomes the platform for households to be able to move forward. And when they don't have stability, they're really struggling. So the book starts off with the story of Becky and Jeremy, who live in a small town in Ohio. Our sites were in California, Mississippi, in Ohio, along the Kentucky border, and here in New York. And Becky and Jeremy are struggling because Jeremy fixes these long haul trucks, these big, big rigs. And you know, every now and then the tires blow or the alternators go or the batteries need replacing. And he works day in, day out fixing these trucks on commission. And one spring day we were out um, in Ohio and talking to Becky, Jeremy's wife, and she was in a sour mood. I'm trying to figure out you know, what was going on. And she said, you know, I, I want to pay this, um, I've got this mortgage check she wanted to pay. She's like, I just don't know if I should pay it or not. It was something as simple as just paying this mortgage check. I said, Becky, what's, what's going on? She says, I don't know if Jeremy's paycheck next um, pay period is going to be big or small. It's usually terrible in the spring. And it turned out that their life was really a roller coaster. 
because in the spring and the fall, it turns out the trucks do pretty well. The weather's nice, you know, the, uh, the trucks just ride down the highway pretty smoothly. It's in the summer when things are super hot or in the winter when things are super cold, the trucks start to break down and Jeremy has a lot more business and his paychecks are bigger. And so we mapped the paychecks over the year and they were going up and down with the seasons. We could see something as just as simple as that being a story of this uncertainty. And we saw with Becky and Jeremy, it was commissions that were driving it. Other folks were earning money based on tips. They also saw a lot of volatility, but increasingly there's a story in America that's about hours. The hours, we know the stories, schedules are uncertain, erratic, unpredictable. And so a much bigger swath of American workers are subject to these ups and downs. They have jobs, right? Unemployment rate's pretty low. They have jobs, but they still have a lot of uncertainty. So, so this project is just one year, so you can't say from your data that the volatility is rising, but it certainly feels that way, and there is other data that points to it, um, right? And, and it's that overall the broad trend uh, that you guys identify is that there's this risk being shifted from employers to the workers, right? Not just in there are fewer pensions or that there are fewer people in unions and that they have less power, but things like who gets to control hours or if there is volatility in a, in a retail shop, right? And, and used to be you still show up and get your 40 hours, but now you get sent home higher than that. And, we, and, and again, like we should make this so that you guys talk to each other and you jump in and I just hang out over here and, and get to reap the fruits of that. But like t talk about that great risk shift, if you will. Can I just really quickly, I mean, I think Alex, you've hit on something really important, right? Like whatever your walk of life is, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And one of the side effects of you guys doing this work for so long is you've inspired a lot of other people to jump on the bandwagon. And I think the book is very careful to say, you know, look, this is 235 families and we learn things from that, but we're clearly not telling the entire story of America. But other people have looked into much bigger data sets and I think they'd say that they were inspired by this work to do so. J.P. Morgan Chase Institute looked at their entire customer base and found this, the Pew Charitable Trusts, massive national surveys. They looked and they found this. My radar's been up because this event's been coming up, but I think it was like Thursday of last week, and Canada's biggest bank commissioned a survey to look for volatility in their data set in Canada, and they found, it's TD, I think, by the way, um, and they found this is a very common uh, occurrence in Canada. So, so we have, you know, you guys have provided this amazing sort of deep set that's inspired people to use big data to look for the same thing. And I, I think, I don't think anybody's gonna look at this and say anything other than this is reflective of the national picture. And, and I think sort of going forward for all of us in terms of illustrating this risk shift, that you, that you mentioned, Alex, which, which is very real, very consequential, you know, this idea going forward, we have, a, we have an amazing model now that we didn't have before of marrying individual voice to big data, and I think that's actually really promising in terms of helping us to get to solutions. Um, and I know that's probably jumping ahead a little bit, and I don't want to cut off sort of the risk shift, but Unique, you, live, you work with people who experience this in New York, right, every day. So congratulations on the book again, it's amazing. Um, I think the other piece of this is that you all did something that feels radical, but that should not 
you talk to people. That unfortunately feels so radical in this work and the understanding of why people are poor or you know, why cash flow is the way that it is. Um, but I really appreciate as a practitioner um, doing this work, someone who's been in anti-poverty work for close to 20 years, that you spent the time getting to know people and really understand day to day what happens. Because when we don't do that, I think that we then look at the data sets, right? And we, we understand a very different kind of data-driven story. And we end up making assumptions about people, their lives, and their choices, why someone like Becky makes a trade-off, right, about her mortgage check, why that's even uh, an option that she's considering. If you don't have the full picture, if you don't understand what's actually happening day to day, then you can't bring the solutions to the table. You can't actually understand the data in its most holistic form. So I think that's the point for me that's really resonant in terms of the work that we do in Mott Haven in, in the South Bronx with families. We talk to people and we understand what their lives are and what, what's happening on a day-to-day -day level. So can I ask you a genuine question here? Sure. It's like, what is a misconception that you can set straight, that you get to see day-to-day, -day, that big data is getting wrong? That people are poor because they're not smart. People are poor because they don't know how to use money or they're not, they're, they're faulty or reckless with money. People are poor and you, and you layer I'm purposely not doing this, but when you layer race and gender and socioeconomic status and zip code on that, there are all sorts of assumptions. I mean, we automatically go back to, you know, images of whether it's the welfare queen or sort of other very, very resonant things that inform the way that we think about why people are poor, the way that we think about the safety net, which unfortunately we have to have a conversation about bringing back or why that's important. So when you just look at the numbers, and when you look at all of the confusing, whether it's the data sets or, or the conversations in the media about you know, why people are poor, and specifically a community like the one that I work in, in Mott Haven, um, where 40% of people are making less than $20,000, where close to 80% of kids are born into poverty. There's all sorts of assumptions when you just look at the raw data. Um, and if you're not taking the time to have the conversations, then it's, that's what you get. Can I add one that's um, that's really policy based and that I've spent a lot of time with and that comes out in the book? Sure. Um, half of half of the country, we have a retirement savings crisis, right? This is sort of in. I think I don't know. Do we have a retirement savings crisis? Uh, yes. All right. Good. <laughs> yeah. We 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 do, right? And the numbers tell us that like half of the workforce has a 401k or similar type plan through work. And you look at that and you say, okay, well. As a policy wonk to fix this problem, what we need to do is make sure that everyone has a 401k account. So, so how do we do that, right? Jeremy's got a 401k or has had a series of 401ks, but he doesn't have any retirement savings. And why is that? It's because the immediate pressures of pe on people like Jeremy lead them to, when they change jobs or when something bad happens, pull money out of those accounts. And they pay, they pay taxes, they pay penalties, they pay fees, and they earn the derision of the policymaking community and the retirement providers who say, tut, tut, if you had better financial education, you wouldn't do that. It's a product that doesn't work for people because it doesn't meet their needs. And if we listen to them, I think that we would make different choices in terms of sort of what product we would provide them. We would start to pay attention to people's totally unmet need to build emergency savings. And that's something that the government in many ways is hostile towards 
at this point. And I think that's a thing that comes through in the book. Yeah, so I think it's worth us talking about some of the creative solutions that the people you talk to came up with, right? Like, here's the message loud and clear, is that the financial services offered to the people in your sample do not meet their needs, and that they are a creative bunch in figuring out what they're going to do about it. So I just think, like, there were just so many great examples. Like, let, 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 just start rattling them off and tell us those stories. Can I, I just want to step back before the examples and sort of frame this a little bit. I mean, what, Justin, what you're saying, um, you know, is exactly right. We focus so much on helping people save for retirement, but don't think about this problem of helping people keep that money safe there. And so many households are pulling money out of retirement because that's the money they saved up. And it's not just emergency savings that people need. One of the things we found was that when your life looks like this, it's going up and down, you need savings that is going to help you smooth that out. And that's a short-term kind of saving. It's not saving for that catastrophic event where you lose your job and can't find another job for six months or you have a huge health problem. Those are big issues, too, and you do need to be protected for that. But there's a sort of month in, month out, year in, year out kind of saving, which we don't really have a language for. And it's savings which disappears. It doesn't accumulate, right? The whole idea is to build it up and take it down as you need it. And so Becky and Jeremy were saving in that way, or trying to. But at the end of the day, they don't end up with savings. And we really need to, to reframe it. But they were doing really interesting things um, trying to sort this out. She needs a commitment vehicle of some sort, like some way to hold her goal. But it's got to be a commitment mechanism that's not so strong that it's a disincentive to save, but not so weak that it doesn't create a boundary at all. Um, and so lots of versions of that. So that was the one where it was saving by shopping, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. right. You know, then she knew she had taken care of what she was going to need. And, and it's like, if I remember right, she would, if toothpaste was on sale, she would buy all of the toothpaste, basically. And then they just had enough of it, or canned goods or something. And then if times were tough later, she just shopped less uh, because her pantry was stocked full for a nuclear winter. Also, it's, it's less tempting to then take and go use for some fun, arguably irresponsible purpose. Totally true. Right? So it's a commitment mechanism. She was admitting that she basically would waste her money uh, on something not as useful if she had his cash. Can you all hear her? Is her mic on? No? Oh, super close. Is that better? <laughs> it's very exciting. Oh, thank you. All right, well, I hope you still heard me. Um, 
what's, you know, we tell the story of a woman named Janice who is, works at a casino. And so because of tips, she has also a lot of ups and downs in her earnings. And she does exactly what you're supposed to do. She splits her direct deposit. The policy types, like, we love splitting direct deposit. And we're very excited about it. And, it, you know, um, if you can put part of your direct deposit into a savings account, part of it into a checking account. But then she does the part we don't love. She cuts up her checkbook and cuts up her ATM card. And instead of using those accounts the way they're designed, she goes to a check casher and uses money orders to pay bills. So she's paying fees, which we tend to think people should avoid. But she does that because those accounts are sort of broken from her perspective. They don't quite work. Um, the checking account, the check itself makes it too tempting to go get a payday loan, which she really doesn't want to do. Um, and is expensive, and you can only get a payday loan by using a post-dated check. So as long as she doesn't have checks, no payday loans. And so it's, again, a commitment device. Um, and she cut up her ATM card so she couldn't get to her savings easily. Uh, she has to drive an hour to the credit union where she has her savings parked, right? even though she has her checking account money close by. So for her, it's a way of saying, well, here's, you know, I'll make that drive for the really, really need. Now, you could hear that story and think, like, why isn't she using it right? Let's, it's, it's about financial education. I hear it and think, why are payday loans so easy to get? Maybe there's another commitment vehicle so that that's harder because they are not a useful product, right? They're predatory. Like, why don't we just make that harder to get in some other way? But right? wait, I, I'm going to just yeah. do my job here and push back. Yes. In that is, uh, if we're saying... These folks are smart, mm -hmm. and they know how to manage their money and make their decisions, but they're just facing hard obstacles. They're choosing to use it, so it must be providing a service. Just pure economic logic, that, that is an argument that it is providing a service that is necessary. Right, so then I think you have to ask the question about the market dynamics that make that the service that's available. Because I agreed, payday loans fit a real need. People use them, and we can come up with stories out of the diaries where people use them exactly how they're designed. They borrow, and then two weeks later, they repay, and it gets them over a dip in income or a spike in spending that is critical. Right, so the payday, the typical narrative is my car broke down, but for the payday loan, I lose my job. Right? And, and that narrative exists, and we heard it. Um, so the real question is, if we think the product is really dangerous, because then we also see the narrative of, I took out one, and then I couldn't repay it, and... Four cycles later, I owe way more than I ever thought I would. So then you have to say, well, why is the market not providing a competitive product? What, what's wrong with um, the business model and the incentives for business people that they haven't come up with something that's not predatory but does meet the need? When you walk down, when you, to that point, when you walk down 149th Street in the South Bronx between, so one, one block, um, between 3rd Avenue and Cortland, right off of the 2 and the 5 train, there are seven, I just counted them on my way here, there are seven um, uh, local ATM branches, and there's three payday lending cash checking places. And there are now two converted, um, uh, you know, get your tax refund very quickly um, coming out of tax season. So it, the system is not designed to make it easy for folks to be able to make other options. When you are in that moment where you have no bandwidth and you have no slack and you are trying to make immediate choices, right, to put food on the table or to pay rent, 
you know, as a mom, I'm not concerned about the bigger picture, the long term. I'm trying to do something right now for my family. And when you're, when you're walking through all of that, I think that you refer to it as the noise, right? When you're walking through all of that and all of the noise, it is hard to quiet that down. So from a consumer perspective, right, it's hard to not make those choices, but the system is not designed to offer any other kind of option for people to make safe and better choices. Can I just, we just, um, this is something we could talk the whole night about, and I, and I, and I don't want to close that off. We actually, we just published a, a first-of-its-kind map of every financial services provider in the country, everywhere, right? It's um, every bank, every credit union, every payday lender, every auto title lender, everywhere in the country. Um, and we put into that map the ability to sort of look at racial composition in the geography. Um, so you can sort of look and see. And it's a very consistent pattern where uh, neighborhoods uh, where people of color predominantly live are targeted by alternative financial services providers. It's not, um, I would argue, a sort of uh, a protected marketplace. And, and through the research that's been done by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we've found that 85% of the business in the payday lending business is repeat business. It is the crack of products. They are designed so that people are not able to pay them off. And you hear, yes, there are stories where they work, um, and, and that needs to be respected and appreciated. Um, but there are many, many more stories, and this is an area where I think the data is very valuable to us, where people pay $4,000 for a $400 loan, and that's, that's a bigger problem. So we don't need to, like you said, have the whole conversation be about payday lending, because it could be. On the, on the notion of creative responses, there was one other one I just want to throw out that happened. People were using the tax code, essentially, as a way to save, right, overpaying their taxes so that they would then get one big lump sum. Um, and I think one we should come back to later is, is uh, all of the rotating savings and credit groups, which we can maybe talk about uh, at the policy end. But there were just so many, it's really worth reading the book to just see all of these different mechanisms that people come up with, um, which is a reminder that, you know, people are smart, no matter how much money they have, and they're going to figure something out. I want to ask on this, on, on income smoothing and how uh, they go, these families go about income smoothing. And I kind of want to hear you guys call bullshit. Is, is um, Uber and the gig economy something that is helpful at all? Right? This is how it's being sold. Picking up extra shifts. One cab right here, one cab right there. Does it help at all? Yeah. I mean, that, it's a tough one, right? Because it, it's both... I want to know what to feel about it every time I take a ride. So I'm, it's a selfish question. I, guilt. You know, guilt, <laughs> Alex. Terrible, guilt. Terrible. I'm teeing you up here. I was raised Catholic, Alex. It's definitely guilt. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, putting all the stuff about Uber aside. You're allowed to disagree. Um, but, you know, it's both a symptom and partly an answer for some folks, for sure. And we, I mean, we don't, in our sample, see a lot of Uber drivers or, you know, people doing TaskRabbit stuff. But we do see a lot of people with side jobs. I mean, that is increasingly how Americans are getting by, is they have a regular job and some side jobs, um, which come and go. And those help, but it's just another set of stresses also. Sounds like not a strong yes or no in either way on that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I, think, that, I think, out there. think that's where we are, neither a strong yes or no. I mean, Rachel, well, I was gonna say, gonna say something different. No, I was going to, I think that um, the basic, the idea that people need side jobs in order to make ends meet when they have full-time work, should be, should be underscored, 
right? So we tell a story in the book about a family that we call the Johnsons, and they have nine sources of income over the course of the year because they both, both members of the couple work full time, and then they both have a slew of side jobs, and then there's child support from prior relationships, and then there's a tax refund. We should not underestimate the level of complexity that that introduces into somebody's financial planning over the course of the year, nor should we fail to really say over and over again, why do you need so many jobs? Like Two jobs seems like a right number, maybe. Well, and, and this, that does raise the big question that I think looms over a lot of this, which is why aren't some of these problems solved by the families just spending less? Yeah, and like, we Why don't they money. just buy less, live in a cheaper house, spend less? I mean, I, I personally think that that argument is such bullshit. Like, I, I think, I do. I mean, I, I, you would never say that. You would only say that to certain people, right, um, who look a certain way or have a certain perception, right, about, you know, why their situation is the way that it is. And so, again, when, so at Lyft, we work with families. Um, we're a national organization. It's L-I-F-T, not L-Y-F-T. Not the car company. Yeah. Not the legal information services. Um, uh, and we work with families, and part of if, what I was saying that what we do is very aligned to this methodology of really getting to understand who our parents are and the choices that they're having to make. And the reality is that the rhythm of people's lives are inconsistent, right? Regardless of what your skin color is, regardless of what your zip code is, it is inconsistent. Something like, you know, um, losing your Metro card, right, can derail you. I mean, just very simply just derail you. And so it's not a, it's not a question of spending less. Um, the question is, like, what is going on, right? It's a question of illiquidity um, that you all talk about. It's a question of cash flow and how people are able or equipped to be able to have the, the, the injection of cash in the moment to meet those expenses. So you, it, it's not a question of spending less. These are some of the most probably thrifty people that you've ever met. Um, um, so that's, that's not the so, question. So, so the reason I asked it so bluntly is because I actually think that if, if we're going to have policy change somewhere, you have to knock down the argument that the, the strongest skeptic has. Right. And that's it, right? It's just, I'm able to save and not have to do this. I don't spend outside my means. Why well, can't some other group? So, so I, even if it is total bullshit, I think that just it's like my call to, to the community here, right, is like, know how to answer that. Don't dismiss it. Have a response to it because otherwise it won't, it won't, it won't pass when it ever comes up for a vote. Well, I think this is also the data question too, right? I think that we've got to do a better job and I'm speaking as a practitioner. Um, I think that we have to do a better job in terms of being able to show complex sets of data to be able to have that conversation, to be able to push back, but then also to be able to go to funders and go to policymakers and have a real, um, I think, complicated conversation um, that's holistic about all of the needs and the concerns. So, so can I bring this to a topic that I know you all want to talk about a lot, which is poverty, and that there is this one, there's this line, and if you are having a volatile income, you go over it, you go under it, you go over it, you go under it, and that has some serious implications because being below it triggers a bunch of stuff, right? Service government services or, um, you know, you may ha be eligible or ineligible for different programs, and so like the volatility really starts to get uh, pretty serious uh, and have some serious impacts when you have this line, poverty, to the group. I mean, this was really striking for us. So Becky and Jeremy, who we've been talking about in Ohio, yeah, their income's okay if you look at it over the year. It's about $43,000 a year. They've got four kids, so you know, it's stretched. 
but they're definitely not poor on average. But when we track them month by month, six months out of the year, their income actually was dipping below the poverty line. Right? And when that happened, they went on SNAP, on food stamps, they went on state health insurance. They felt terrible about it. They're like, you know, there's so many people who are poorer than us because it was a really odd situation or an uncomfortable situation to not be poor, but to be poor. And that is increasingly a situation that Americans find themselves in because so many Americans are clustered close to poverty lines. And then you add this volatility, it's just a mathematical uh, certainty that we're going to have so many people going back and forth. And our safety net, to the extent that it still exists, is not designed for people who need help some of the time, but not all the time. And you must see this all the time in your work. We see a lot of, we do taxes for our, our families. And so tax time, and you talk a lot about the earned income tax credit, the EITC, is something that really boosts, and there's wonderful research on this, the EITC really boosts a lot of low-income families, and particularly single mothers' um, income, which can have really significant impact, wonderful impact for them over time. So we see that there's a certain time of the year where there's this real spike in people's income, and then it's then well, what happens to that? And then by this time of the year, depending on the choices, depending on the trade-offs, they're back at square one. They're back in the same place that they were at in November. And so, you know, as an organization, as a nonprofit organization, as a practitioner, we're trying to really figure out, well, how do we help people? How do we understand the situation? How do we help people navigate that, right? How do we help them choose the right tools? Maybe it's not the 401k plan. Maybe it's something else to help you, you know, navigate this and be able to better predict where you're going to be in a couple of months. We skipped over this, but one of the things that you also talked about was the lending circles and, you know, these sort of informal savings groups that people, this has been going on for decades. It's something that's very vibrant in immigrant communities. In my family, my family's from Trinidad, we call it the SUSU. Um, and so, you know, how do you figure out how to also optimize these opportunities um, to be able to guard against some of the, that volatility when you see those spikes at tax time or, or so forth? I think, so I think one of the things the book does where it does a real service is by taking this on, right? Because like you said, Alex, and you pointed out really effectively, there's a lot of myths around this. And it's, it's you know, I'm going to get a, a little reticent to sort of say like, this is the poverty section of the conversation, right? Because one of the services that the book's, book does is it points out what we know to be true, which is that the vast majority of people who are in poverty and, and receiving government assistance of one type or another they are working. They are working and they still need help. And that is, as I've said earlier, about worker power and the lack of it and the fact that Jeremy is working on commission on the night shift fixing trucks. And he quits that job to take a lower paying job where he can work in the day and have an hourly wage that's the same. And so he, that's a choice that he makes. And that's about worker power. And it's not about his individual shortcomings. And it's not about his bad financial choices. And so, you know, some of the narratives that have built up over time are really, really poisonous. The OMB director today uh, referred to receipt of public benefit um, without expectation of paying it back as theft. You know, some, I've been in this game long enough and it's silly to call it a game, forgive me, but 
I've been in this game long enough where that was not that long ago an extreme fringe view and it is now very much at the center of our politics. And so whatever we can do to push back against the narrative that, that there are just people in poverty and they are undeserving of help or, or do not, uh, we really need to do. There is no us in them, it's just us. And some of us, all of us need help. When I, I mean, I was, what, three years old, my little brother was born and, and my family received WIC assistance, right? So assistance for people with, food assistance for people with newborns. I am not corrupted uh, eternally by receipt of that benefit. It helped my family. It was an investment in my family and an investment in my well-being. And we need to start to turn around the narrative around what we're doing when people are connecting uh, to supports for the short term. So, so what, what is the policy prescriptions? And we'll get to questions soon, so start thinking of your questions. But what, what is the, the, the policy lesson or the action lesson or the, if you are a, a nonprofit or a community group or, or a bank, what is the lesson now that we have a fuller picture of the volatility? So in, in general poverty? or when it comes to poverty? I think uh, specifically I'm most concerned with, with poverty. But I'll, I'll take, if you've got, I mean, you spend way more time thinking about this than me, so just lay it on me. <laughs> on the poverty side, I mean, one of, the, one of the things which is striking coming from the Bangladesh side, developing countries, is in developing countries, we always measure poverty in terms of consumption. So we, we do that partly because, you know, that accounts for people's ability to protect their consumption and, and smooth it. In the U.S., we measure poverty by income, which makes sense, it's more accurate, et cetera. However, if we really want to think about helping households protect you know, their welfare, we should be thinking at least in terms of consumption. And that means there are a whole series of kinds of interventions, including financial services interventions, that we need to imagine and support and maybe subsidize to help people save and borrow in more responsible ways as a poverty reduction measure and a poverty um, kind of protection measure. But the other side is our safety net is just not designed for people who are dipping in and out. But what would a safety net design for that be? Well, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, you could just think about the administrative process of getting benefits, and then it's idiotic. It, hundreds and hundreds of pages of forms. I mean, there's, there's no way to describe it with anything other than disdain. Um, lots, wrote, right? on the bottom of the income spectrum, if government policy served any function, it was to create hurdles for families trying to save. Look, that's so great. I love that sentence. Yeah, you wrote exactly. it. <laughs> yes, I still agree with that. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, it's ridiculous. We just make it too hard. So a family like Becky and Jeremy, like if people are going to go in and on and off of whatever government benefit it is, on and off food stamps, on and off healthcare assistance, in and out of public housing, none of that's easy. All of that is designed assuming that you need that help in perpetuity, and hence it's worth the effort to make sure that you're not fraudulently claiming it. When reality is that we could do a lot more around short-term, flexible cash assistance. And we've basically gotten rid of cash assistance, um, which implies that people have no idea what they actually need. They just need what we're willing to give them. But in fact, like I think it is likely that there are moments when a small amount of cash assistance to bridge from now till next month would be invaluable and would be far more cost-effective to provide than public housing which is so expensive that we only provide it to a third at most of the people who actually qualify for it, let alone need it. So there's, we could do a lot more to think about sort of flexible short-term assistance. We should do a lot more to think about making the whole process easier and less, less painful, less cumbersome. I, I, think that, I think that 
because poverty is so complex, right? I think there are, it's not going to be one silver bullet or a panacea, right? But I do think that there are different ways depending on what your, where you're, where you're entering the conversation is. I think there are different ways to participate. And I could not agree more about the cash assistance. When you ask people and people that I work with, like, what is the biggest hurdle? They're like, straight up, I don't have any money. I need more money, right? I can't make it from point A to point B. Why can't we just give you money? Like, why can't we just give you, figure out how to give you money? And the cash assistance, but just, can we match your savings? Can we provide opportunities for there to be, um, you know, emergency funds available? Because if the difference between you moving from point A to point B is that Metro card that you lost, like, that's going to be the thing that helps you walk across the street to go to that payday lending place, take out that $400 loan, and now you're in $4,000 because of a metro card, that doesn't make any sense. And so how do we, I think, and I'm again speaking as a practitioner, um, nonprofits, how do we think about really um, providing that cash assistance and that support? There's research that says that you know, if you give people and poor people money, they're not gonna abuse it. So why don't we just do that? I think that that's one of the ways that we could really support um, this process. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there's also research showing that the right money at the right time can save money in the long term. People can stay in their homes, they don't get evicted, and that ultimately saves the government. But we have such a bias against thinking that way that it's hard to approach it. And yet we're really undermining ourselves and undermining you know, households. So I, I think one more comment, and then we should go to questions. I don't know where a mic is for the audience, but we'll figure that out. Can I just, let me chime in on this uh, before Rachel. Let me sort of endorse the need for cash, right? that cash is not a thing that people can aspect, can access. Uh, of all the things you might need to endorse that people right. don't believe. Right. Well, so let me throw let me one observation. And the stat is that uh, in the state of Mississippi in 2015, 1.2% uh, of applications for TANF cash assistance were approved by the state of Mississippi. What we used to call welfare no longer exists there, and it is an endangered species in other places. Um, one of the things that I think is promising, um, and, I, and I actually don't think it's promising in and of itself, I think it's promising because it's one of good sh show us, is the hot topic in this space, the thing that all the geeks are really excited about, is a universal basic income, right? And I don't think this is going to work in the long run, and that's my estimation, but people are going to experiment with it in places, and it's going to teach us things. And what it's going to do, here's a crystal ball moment, which I usually try and avoid. It's going to underscore this point for us very clearly. Give Directly, which works in East Africa, is a way for wealthy Westerners to funnel money to people in need in Eastern Africa, particularly Kenya. They're studying what people do with it. What are they doing? They're meeting the needs of their family. They're investing in themselves. That's what people do when you give them cash. Yes, you're opening the door to people being people, um, but I think we need to accept that, and I think we need to move towards a vision that respects the way people live their lives. Uh, so I wanted to bring it back to this theme that you raised earlier around the idea of risk having shifted. Um, so a lot of what we've talked, we talked about it in the employment context, but we didn't really underscore this point when we were talking about lending. Um, and everything we said about payday, I could have just replaced with the word credit card. Um, this, so the, the issue is that 
we are shifting risks from institutions onto individuals in massive ways, whether we're thinking about that through the financial services industry, whether we're thinking about employers, whether we're thinking about the role of government. We are now asking individual families to do things that could be done much more efficiently and much more effectively if we spread that risk across a group. And a lot of the, the pain that we're seeing is, by, is because we're expecting people to manage risks on their own versus as a collective. Those were such eloquent uh, statements by everybody. This is a curiosity question, uh, at least the way I think of things. There's kind of two narratives at the backdrop of the question of why these structural realities are occurring in the first place, why there's so much volatility. And on one side, you can kind of think a kind of boogeyman, you know, that this is a kind of moment of elite excess, that very powerful people kind of fostering a corrupt political process have been able to, through conscious policy, concentrate wealth and resources for themselves in a kind of compassionless way that's having this kind of cascading effect on the public. On the other side of it, you can look at this as a no boogeyman. These are simply impersonal processes linked to automation, globalization. There's really, you know, and, and these are structural problems in the nature of our capitalist economic model. And we kind of have to have the conversation kind of perched there. So I'm kind of, I know it's easy to say both, but I'd be curious where the panel is and kind of leaning one way or the other on that question. And then just, I'd be curious about what Jonathan, why the uh, basic income, you think it won't work in the long run? Jonathan, I actually would really like to hear what you have to say on the first part of the question about boogeymen. Yeah, uh, this is, it's a, a tricky one. I think my sense of what's going on in, our, in the economy is that you know, increasingly markets are less and less competitive and power shifting, as Rachel's saying, you know, away from workers, that's meaning, that means more risk onto them. And it means that a lot of our intuition about how markets should be functioning, competitive markets, is going out the window. And so what we're seeing, for example, is that you can raise minimum wages, and that's not leading to less workers and inefficiency. I think by the same token, you can stabilize incomes, and you can do a lot more for job quality, and that's not going to undermine workers and efficiency. In fact, it will probably improve it, because markets just aren't functioning the way competitive markets suggest they should. So that's my general sense. We're just so far out of whack that there are a lot of things that ordinarily would be bad ideas that actually can work in this context. So I, I normally freak out when people talk about culture as an explanation for things. I think it can be a part of the story, but I think that you know, policy and culture are kind of married to each other and that we have to always examine the role of policy. But I'm going to, part of the reason I don't think UBI will work, and I should qualify this by saying in the US, is that I think it's not a, it's not a fit for our culture. People in Ohio, who are in, are in clear need are deeply reticent to sign up for nutrition assistance, to sign up for SNAP. They won't, they, you know, and many, in many, many, many cases, they don't and won't, right? Well, and I, I would just add on to that. I think the universal basic income conversation, I agree with Justin, it's really important and worth watching. I don't think we've done enough to understand what framing could fit within our culture. And there is some really exciting and interesting sort of experimentation and market research people are trying to do on this concept to understand. And for those of you who aren't paying attention to the UBI debate, right, this is the idea that perhaps every American should just get a certain amount of money every year. And there are all sorts of reasons to think that it's logistically and politically impossible. But it is interesting to think about what, what causes the shift where somebody says, this money isn't, I don't have to feel bad about getting this. I deserve this. And, and that's the interesting thing about the EITC. It's assistance that's framed as, I earned it. And there is a world where you figure out how to frame 
UBI that way, I think. That said, like there are many political reasons why we're not about to start giving everybody $12,000 a year. So I'm, I'm, I work in Bangladesh a lot with um, unconditional cash transfers that, that affect people that, that experience extreme seasonality. So I'm very struck by the similarities of a lot of the same issues around seasonality, income fluctuation, uh, resilience to economic shock, et cetera. So we are trying to figure out how do we develop financial products that actually work with the financial lives of poor people. So if you were to invent you know, never mind all the green dots and the, the cash, you know, paycheck lending kinds of things. But if you were to invent a product or a set of products that would actually work with the families, for the families that you followed for the year, what would you come up with? What kinds of financial products would work? So I, the thing I like best, right, I, I could come up with something from whole, out of thin air, but I, I actually think the thing I like best in the universe right now is a company called Even. And I like it for a few reasons. So what they're trying to do is, you know, it's an app. You hook it up to your bank account. They follow your paychecks. And what they try and do is they calculate your average paycheck. And when you're lower than that, they top it up. When you're higher than that, they pull it back to repay what they've just topped up, right? So in theory, they can smooth it out for you. The reason I'm so intrigued by their solution is many things. One is that they, they're, not, they're no longer selling. You could view it as a loan. You could view it as a savings account. They're not selling either of those things. They're selling stability over time. And they're charging people a regular fee for that experience versus, and so because they're charging a fee for that experience, they're not invested in you not repaying that loan. They're invested in you being a long-term customer. And they need you to repay the loan in order for their business model to work. And that's a very big difference versus higher, you know, charging interest on outstanding credit. It's a game-changing difference in the business model because all of a sudden, their interests are aligned with that of their customers. Now, they're going to try and distribute this through employers. So then, all of a sudden, you think, well, to me, this is now analogous to an employer providing any other benefit. Employers providing health care, employers providing retirement. They've now outsourced the project of enabling you to have a stable income to an entity more capable of doing it. Right? The company has already chosen that they can't give you a stable income because it's better for their business model to give you variable hours. So if they are then able to partner with a fintech company who can create that stability for you, I see that as potentially like putting the right risk in the right places in a variety of ways, right? Because you now have a financial services company who's trying to do the financial services project of gauging whether or not you're going to be able to make it even over time. You have an employer who's maximizing their productivity of their workforce. You have a worker who's working flexibly, perhaps, but still experiencing stability. I'm not sure it's perfect. Like, I can, I can cut all sorts of holes in everything I just said. There are other reasons why instability is a problem. You still have to worry about childcare. You still have to worry about, like, you know, it's not a panacea, but it's, it's a good window into how a really well-designed financial product distributed in the right way, shifts risk from an individual onto a bigger system. Yeah. And what's really cool about even is that it's not a savings product, it's not a borrowing product, it's this other thing, which is really a liquidity services product. And that's totally different. And in Bangladesh, right, some of the coolest stuff that's happening in innovation is really about providing liquidity, the right money at the right time, 
whether through mobile banking or, or other means. So I, that's a shift, and that's a, there's a hole in the market for those kind of products. I know I'm rambling on this, but one more thing about it that I think is worth pointing out and that we write about in the book is that it's not seamless and transparent. It's highly communicative, right? So it turns out, like we have this model, I think, that somehow financial services are going to happen in the background and we're not going to have to think about bill payment. But for people who are experiencing volatility and instability, that's too scary. They don't want to outsource it 100%. They want to be able to touch and feel it. They want to see the experience of it. They want to know how much money they have. How much is being put towards what bill? And so one thing even learned in their development process was they shouldn't make this like a perfect behind-the-scenes experience. It should be very transparent and highly communicative with the customer. I would say that the whatever financial product you design, it has to be in partnership with the consumer base that you're interested in serving. Um, I wanted to ask about the differences and similarities that you observed across the different locations where you talk to people, and in particular, you know, which, which was dominant? And to the extent that you observe differences, you know, could you attribute them to something like the housing market or the labor market or culture or what? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a tough one in, in the sense that with 235 households across the country and different kinds of communities in different places, it's hard to generalize. One thing, though, really comes down to policy. So Justin just gave a great example. I mean, it's, it's really stunning that under 2% of TANF applicants were 1.2% accepted in Mississippi. And in general, with block granting so much, when you're in Mississippi, when you're you know, in small towns, you're just not feeling the presence of a safety net or you know, government activity of much kind. Versus California, New York, I'm pointing to <laughs> Rachel as a proud Californian. Um, or New York City, I mean, or, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's huge. If I was going to say one thing that really differentiated these communities, the difference is how much they can rely on, on the community and public supports. Can I give, uh, so I was named, I can, I can follow up, right? Yeah. Um, so I have a, so we've done a lot of work on this uh, over the years. Federalism is sort of a classic, you know, it's American tradition and and we love the states as laboratories of ideas, but there's no point in our political process where we actually do that thing where we look at what's worked and then lift it up, right? We just, we're just committed to federalism, which at times manifests itself as a race to the bottom. And, and I think when you look at anti-poverty policy in a lot of places, that's what you see. And I think you know, something I've spent a lot of time on that comes up in the book a little bit is the idea of um, asset limits, right? If you are going to accept nutrition assistance, if you were going to try and qualify for TANF, if you were going to qualify for home heating assistance in Rochester, every state has a different level at which you're allowed to have some financial resources and still qualify. And it varies by product and it varies by program in addition to varying by state. We've tried to map out what the rules are that poor people are allowed to save under, and it ends up looking like a Jackson Pollock. I mean, it's such a confusing morass of red tape that people bailing on the process and deciding that having a bank account, having a savings account, and having some money set aside is not for them. It's a rational choice to avoid that hassle. And you can live across the street from somebody who lives under a totally different regime and is, in fact, encouraged to be setting some money aside, whereas you're deeply discouraged from doing it. And that's a problem. 
before you started, did uh, what proportion of the families had a kind of extant understanding of the overall picture? Like you guys said, you mapped out an entire year. Did they have an inherent understanding of what, regardless of you know how stable or unstable the income was, as far as the outgoing and the expenses? Did did people have an idea as to what it cost them to to live a year, barring any uh, catastrophes? So. I think that the, the most important point to make there is that our process, for the most part, did increase people's knowledge and awareness over their own finances. So when we started, right, our goal was to not provide financial advice. The field researchers were on strict orders not to do so. But we just knew the process of sitting with somebody and going through their money would have an impact on their financial lives, and, and it did. And we asked people if it did. They said it did. So for some, it was the, well, now I understand it better. For some, it's you know, sitting down with somebody on a regular basis made me change how I behaved. Either way, like the fact that we still saw so much hardship and insecurity within that context, I think, is really striking. So I think we should just go around for just last thoughts. We, you know, I've learned a lot. I think we know we like short-term cash assistance up here, and we, we do not like payday loans. <laughs> The safety net should accommodate volatility more, and that there is, we think, I, I sense some optimism here, room for uh, maybe the private sector to come in and actually play a role. There, there is a market to be served. Um, so that's just what, what I heard mirroring it back. But if you guys want to go around, just take a brief minute with whatever one big point you feel like you want to remind us so we can, we can leave here with the takeaways. So let me bring up something that that I think we've talked a little bit about, but that's sort of very much in my mind going forward. There's a, I think I was really happy to not be in DC today, so thank you for welcoming me to New York. It was kind of sort of a dark day down there, and that's not an uncommon occurrence recently. But I, I, think, I think one of the silver linings of what I consider to be a dark moment for us is that people are waking up, and I think one of the great things the book does is it, it really does say I think there's a role for everybody to sort of participate in um, in trying to improve sort of the lives of their community. And, and I think we see something of, a, of an awakening um, happening in American politics, which cannot be divorced from sort of what's going to happen on the policy side. And so I'm really optimistic about work like this that brings actual voices and lived experience. And we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of years trying to bring that voice more actively into the policymaking process so that rather than myth and narrative and fairy tale informing what we do, real people are. And so I'm hopeful that we can, that we can make some change that way. And thank you for contributing to that work. Unique? So ditto to all of that. I, I think the thing that I'll amplify here is the collective impact piece. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that any of this can be done, any of the uh, trying to uncover the solutions to this massive, complicated problem that is poverty in, in people's lives being so unstable. I think it, ha it requires an effort of people coming together at the policy level, at the nonprofit level, at the public sector, at the private sector, um, funders, if there are any philanthropists in the room, um, I think that the funding community plays a huge, huge, huge role in this. And we really have to start, we have to remove ourselves from these silos um, and have the conversation that also includes constituent and community voices and stakeholders. So I, I would echo the collective impact piece. I guess I should ditto the ditto, because this collective effort, I mean, has really been central to everything we've been able to do. And it's, you know, having 
a group of families that have opened their lives to us and let us know about very intimate things going on and shared stories that we could then share with others and organizations at local levels, at national levels, at state levels, who sort of come together and helped us see things we didn't see or share data or collected their own data um, to sort of test what we were finding or um, push back against what we were arguing. That's been really important. And I think you know, everybody so, somehow sees this as an issue and we're all groping our way. Coming back to what Justin was just talking about, decentralization. I mean, in many ways, on this side, you know, I really do think the best thing for Mississippi would be to go against that whole American spirit of you know, states getting to choose things and decentralizing and everything that we build on because it's just not working for the um, localities that are not in the middle, not at the average. But that said, the fact that we don't have a centralized um, system means there's so many experiments in so many places where things are happening and could be um, experimented with. And there's so much to learn at the state level, at the city level. That's where a lot of the action's gonna be. It's truly exciting. And the work that like, Bank On started in San Francisco that's now being spread to cities across the country. There are lots of examples of local initiatives. So we've all been having dark days. But when you get out of Washington, the great thing is that you actually can have some great days because in places around the country, really imaginative, creative, important things are happening. And we've got to hold on to that and try to build it. Rachel? So I want to come back to where Zav started on the idea of inequality. And fundamentally, what we're trying to argue here is that there is a version of inequality that we haven't seen before. We've been really aware of income inequality. We've been increasingly aware of wealth inequality. We rightly see and focus on racial inequalities. You know, one of the answers to our, one of the questions we often get is around those, around racial inequalities. Like, do we see something different in Mississippi where our, some of our population was African-American than in New York where some of our population was recent immigrants, right? So like there are really important questions around differences um, across the US that deserve our attention. But what we see through our research is that there's this additional version of inequality that, trans, that is experienced both by rural African-Americans and whites and by recent immigrants, and that's an inequality in access to a steady, stable financial life. And that inequality deserves our attention alongside income, alongside wealth, because it is often what is most salient, what's most painful for somebody in the moment, and also because it is deeply interconnected with those other forms of inequality. And if we want to shift the structural dynamic in our country around equality, we have to be able to focus on these day-to-day -day issues of how people are making their financial lives work. Attention is a scarce and finite resource, like time and money, right? And it takes a lot of attention to manage a budget that is volatile, more attention. And Attention should not be a luxury good because it is what you need in order to lift yourself up and to put to much more prudent uses, I guess, or, or long-term uses than how will you pay for food. So that's what this work caused me to reflect on today, and I hope that someone in this room may figure out how to make the attention inequality uh, a little more even, and I want to thank all of you for your attention for this conversation. Rachel Schneider, Jonathan Morduck, Unique Brathwaite, and Justin King. There are, yeah, round of applause.
please stick around. There is wine in the back. There are books for sale. And I think we will all be milling about for the next few minutes. So uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.